The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Please stand for a reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me add my welcome to Aaron's and say we're glad to have you with us, especially if you are new or visiting or a guest. We're really glad that you are here this morning. Um, We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And perhaps as Emmy just read that, you thought, hey, I know this one. This is one of those that is very familiar, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. And in fact, I think the danger for us this morning is that this one is so familiar that we can skip straight to kind of the application piece, right? We know, okay, yeah, we kind of got the idea. This guy gets beat up. Some guys don't do what they're supposed to do. One guy does what he's supposed to do. Be like that guy, right? That's the sermon. Let's close in prayer. That would be awesome. I wish I could preach that short. That would be amazing. I'm not that good. We think we know this sermon, right? We know this passage and we know this story. And often we seek to apply it, we think about service. How are we supposed to love those God puts in our paths? Maybe even your mind is wandering wandering right now to the people we often encounter in our lives, right? Who are asking us for money. And you think, man, I wonder if he's going to tell us what to do this morning. And I'm going to save you an email No, I'm not. This is going to be a very disappointing sermon for those of us looking for very clear-cut answers. Because if you notice, as we read the passage, Jesus also does a little bit of rhetorical jujitsu. Do you notice that? He doesn't give straight answers to the questions. In fact, he keeps reframing the question as he goes. And I wonder if we, because we focus on the service angle of this, how we're supposed to love other people, 
if we don't miss another of Jesus's really significant points in this parable. Because the question that sets up this whole story is actually not, how should we treat other people? It's also not, how do we make the world a better place? The question that the lawyer asks him is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to be saved? I mean, it's the question. What do I do to make sure that I'm right with God, that I live with Him forever? It's the question. It's a story about salvation and how to get it. And so that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. You can see the outline there in your bulletin. We're going to look, first of all, at the question that preoccupies the religious meaning us, the answer that should convict but actually emboldens in verses 26 through 29, and then the story itself, the story that reveals the heart of the religious and of Jesus. That's where we're going. Let me ask the Holy Spirit to join us and to bless our time in God's Word before we continue. Let's pray together. Lord, your Word is no uh, empty word. It's no vain word. It is our very life. You have promised that when it goes out from you, it doesn't return to you void, but accomplishes every purpose that you have for it. And so we ask that you would do that this morning. Whatever your purpose is for our time together in this passage, would you accomplish them this morning? Pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Um, I realized recently that I sort of, in every sermon, mention my children. (laughs) And many of you have probably noticed that and thought, does he just not have anything else going on? And the answer is no, I don't. Um, But also, I do have a lot going on. He's a three-year-old. His name is Cooper. And we were in the car the other day, and he was asking me questions about the fog. And it was one of those situations, as a parent, perhaps you've been there, where you realize immediately, I'm out of my depth, right? I don't remember biology or chemistry or wherever we learned the answer to this question, but I just don't know. And so I've gotten to the point with Cooper where I just realized it's it's easier to tap out early. It's just better to say, I don't know. I don't know, buddy. I'm sorry. I don't know. But what was funny about this time was I said, I don't know. And Cooper got really frustrated. He had this very funny response. He was like, Ugh, just tell me. Just tell me the answer. And it was funny to me because his assumption was, you do know and you don't want to tell me. What he did not realize is that his father is an idiot. Right? He just said, I don't know how to explain that to you, buddy. I'm just dumber than you know that I am. But I really appreciated the energy behind the, Ugh, just tell me. Have you ever had that experience at church, listening to pastors, people like me talk, religious folks, where you're just like, I just want somebody to answer the question. I just want, just tell me, just tell me what the answer is. As we think about how we're supposed to live our lives, are we giving money to the people or are we not giving money to them? And don't say it depends, just tell me. Are we doing it or are we not doing it? And you can imagine as this lawyer comes to Jesus as anyone comes to Jesus, that there's this sense when they ask him a question of just, just tell us the answer. 
Just answer the question. Don't ask another question. Don't do something else with it. But Jesus doesn't do that. As he often does, he comes at it from another angle because he wants us to see that often the questions that our heart presents us are the wrong ones. The questions we have and the way we have of framing them are the wrong questions. This lawyer begins, this whole scene begins with a lawyer in verse 25, asking Jesus a question. He stood up, Luke tells us, to put him to the test. When you hear the Bible talk about lawyers, think less attorney at law and think more Bible expert. It's the guy who knows his Old Testament, and he is getting up to ask Jesus a question that is meant to test Jesus. He wants to see if Jesus can get the right answers. Students, I wonder if any of you have friends who ask questions in class and you think, I don't feel like you had a question. I feel like you just wanted to show off. That's this guy, right? He is putting Jesus to the test. His question is less of a question and more of a comment, right? We know these people. But he asked Jesus a really significant question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question many Jews were asking in Jesus' day. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament in chapter 12 is talking about the end times, the last days, when history comes to an end and the judgment comes. And verse 2 of Daniel 12 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust, those who have died, of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so one of the conversations that the Jewish people are having in Jesus' day is, how do you make sure you're on the good side of that, right? How do you make sure that you, when you awake at the resurrection, that you go to everlasting life and not to everlasting death? Jesus is actually going to get this question multiple times. The lawyer does it here, but in just a few chapters in Luke 18, another famous story, the rich young ruler is going to ask Jesus this exact same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So this question is in the air for everyone. They are expecting a a day of judgment to come when everyone's going to either enter everlasting life or everlasting death. And there's really only one side of the equation that you want to be on, right? We all want everlasting life. We want to live forever. The question is, how do you get it? How does that happen? And so what the lawyer asks Jesus is about that. But notice the way that he frames the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I wonder if anything strikes you as odd about the wording of his question. What must I do to inherit it? Think about that. How do inheritances usually work? Usually when you inherit something, that's not something that you do, right? Something that someone else has done. And because of your relationship with that person you receive the benefits. Inheritances, by their very nature, are generally not something you can earn. Think about it. If I, said, if I came to you and I said, hey, what do I need to do to inherit your house when you die? Just put aside the just insanity and social bizarreness of that question for a moment. Right? What would be the way to answer that? Well, you know, Will, when I die, thank you for the reminder, by the way, That's actually going to go to my family. And if I then said, oh, okay, so what do I need to do to get in your family to get the house? You would, you know, after calling the police, be like, you know, it's not really how it works. 
That's not really how it works at all. You're either in the family or you're not. You could be born into it. We could choose to adopt you. But it's not something that you can really achieve or accomplish. And so when the lawyer asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's missing the tension inherent, inherent in his question. You don't do anything to inherit something. Now, we probably shouldn't overread this, because clearly this is a question that a lot of people have. Maybe this is just a way of talking about being saved for people in Jesus' day. But before we judge the lawyer too harshly, I do think we have to admit that this is the default approach to how to be saved for everyone. What do I need to do? How do I get to the good place when I die? Help me check the boxes. What's the list? And I'll do it. This is a default question. What do I do to get there? And Jesus gives him an answer that ought to convict him, but doesn't. Look back at verses 26 through 29. Verse 26, Jesus says to him, What's written in the law? The Torah, the Old Testament. How do you read it? Jesus turns the question right back around on him. You're a teacher of the law, you tell me. How do you read it? And if you're the lawyer, right, a teacher of the law, and Jesus says, how do you read the law? He has to be jazzed right now. Right? This is his wheelhouse. Jesus just put it on a tee for him. This is what he does. And so he answers. What does he say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, great, really good, it's exactly right, just go do that. Go do that and you'll live. And if you're not paying attention, you can almost miss how huge the task Jesus just gave him is. That he gave himself as he interpreted the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Everything that you've got, for every minute of every day, all for God. Oh, and the way that you take care of yourself, do that for anybody God puts in your path. Do that, and you can live. Notice that the lawyer then responds to Jesus, and he just passes over the first part. That whole loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He skips that part. Check. Got that. No follow-up questions. Do have a question on the neighbor part. Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, what's the lawyer doing when he asks, who is my neighbor? What is he getting at there? What he's getting at is how hard the law actually is to follow. Right? No one can do this. Not with everyone. That would be crazy. Which I think is part of the point that Jesus is trying to drive home for him as he turns the question around on him. Notice this whole passage is covered up with doing language. Do you notice that? Verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 28, do this and you will live. Verse 37, the lawyer says, the one who showed mercy, but you could also translate it, the one who did mercy. And then again in verse 37, you go and do likewise. Why all this doing language? I think what Jesus is trying to get the lawyer to see, at least in part, is you know the right answers, but here's the critical question. Are you actually doing it? And the answer, of course, for the lawyer and for us is no. 
None of us love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind, every minute of every day. None of us love every single person, because that's the implication of how Jesus does this whole neighbor piece here. Everybody is your neighbor. None of us love every person that we interact with as we do ourselves. Left to ourselves, we know this is impossible. But once you get to that point, you have two options. Right? Once you realize, okay, I can't do this, you've got two options. You can throw yourself at God's feet and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or you can try to water down the law to something that's a little more manageable. Right? Bring this back into achievable territory. And which route does the lawyer go? Do you notice the little motive that Luke included in verse 29? The lawyer, seeking to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This is all of us, when confronted with the demands of the law, if we do not throw ourselves at God's feet and ask for mercy, inevitably where we go, when we are asked, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, is to move the field goalposts. Almost all of us immediately start listing things we do. I mean, okay, I do read my Bible. I mean, not every day. Some days. I mean, we're here three out of four Sundays. You know, we do some stuff. But that wasn't the question. The question was your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything you've got, every minute for God. And it ought to drive us to our knees. No, we can't do that. But our impulse is to get defensive and to try to water it down a little bit. It's what the lawyer does. Who then is my neighbor? I mean, good grief, Jesus, this is unworkable. It can't mean to see it can't mean what it seems to mean. So what do I really need to do? Who does this actually apply to? Who is my neighbor? I know if this is reasonable, I can do it. Just tell me who it is and what it is. And when Jesus says to him, do this and you will live, the lawyer should have said, but Jesus, we can't. We can't. But what he says instead is, okay, but what does that even mean? He starts to quibble about the details. He thinks, if I just know the right answer, I can do it. And Jesus wants him to see and wants us to see. The problem is not a lack of knowledge. The problem is your heart. You still don't know how far you have to go. And to help him get there, Jesus tells him a little story. This brings us to verses 30-37, the story that reveals the heart of the religious in Jesus. Often when we read this story, we focus in on how the Samaritan cares for the, the man that's been beaten and robbed and left for dead on the road. And just to be clear, this is the model. This is how we are to love. This is what we ought to aspire for. We stop when other people don't at great cost and risk to ourselves, to care for those that no one else would care for. Yes. But I think Jesus' point is not simply be like the Samaritan. That is a part of it. But it's not the whole story. Because remember, this is a story about salvation. Jesus is trying to help the lawyer see his own heart. How does he do that? The way that Jesus actually sets up the parable of the Good Samaritan is a bit of rhetorical genius actually really amazing the way he sets this up. 
Uh, there's a joke that you'll hear on TV or in movies every now and then where one character is trying to talk about how close he is with another character. And he'll say something like, we know each other so well, we can finish each other's sentences, right? That's what the other character is supposed to say. But of course, the joke always subverts our expectations. And the second character says something stupid, like sandwiches, right? We are supposed to finish each other. We know each other so well, we finish each other's sandwiches. And it's like, no, they're supposed to be sentences. That's the whole joke. The guy didn't say what we know he was supposed to say. And when Jesus sets up this story... He introduces the first two characters of the priest and the Levite, and he is setting the lawyer up. One of the formulations we see throughout the Old Testament, wherever the author is talking about Israel as the gathered people of God, they will often use the formulation, the priests, the Levites, and all the people. If you go back and look at the book of Ezra, you'll see it over and over again. The priests, the Levites, and all of the people. And so when Jesus starts a story and says there's a priest, there's a Levite, they know where he's going next. The next character is supposed to be a lay Israelite, a faithful Jew. They think Jesus is critiquing the clerics. So when Jesus says a Samaritan, he completely throws them for a loop. The Jews hated the Samaritans and vice versa. Get a sense of this down in verse 37. When Jesus finishes the parable and he asks the lawyer who proved to be a neighbor, the lawyer can't even bring himself to say say who he was. He can't say the Samaritan. He just says the one who showed mercy. That is how deep his hatred runs. And it's part of what I think Jesus wants the lawyer to see as he tells him this story. You think your fulfillment of the law to get eternal life is a small thing. You just need some clarification on who your neighbor is. And then you think you could do it. But I just mentioned a Samaritan and your blood ran cold. You can't even take the lesson from the story because you are so focused on the fact that the hero is someone you hate. So when Jesus finishes the parable and asks the lawyer who proved to be a neighbor, and he says the one who showed mercy, and Jesus says again, you go and do likewise, it's another opportunity for the lawyer to pause and go, but who can do that? We hate them. That cannot be what it means to love our neighbor. And if it does, that's impossible. This kind of story invites you to put yourself in various character shoes. The lawyer is almost certainly supposed to see himself in the failures of the priest and the Levite. But I wonder if he is not also supposed to see himself in this man who is lying dead in the road. Waylaid not by robbers, but by his own sin, his own racism, his own inability to keep God's law, and without hope unless someone has mercy on him. I think that is at least a huge part of Jesus' point here. You will not begin, you will not be able to love like this Samaritan until you realize that God has loved you like this when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. You will not be able to love like this until you realize that you have been loved like this. Verse 33, Jesus says the Samaritan, when he saw the man in the road, had compassion. Jesus is going to use that same word in a few chapters in another famous parable. Parable of the prodigal son. When the rebellious son returns home, it says that while he was still a long way off, 
his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We will not be able to love like this, to love our neighbors as we ought, until we realize that God has had compassion on us. Until we stop first asking the question of, okay, just tell me what to do, what to do, what to do. And realize you can't. But he can and he has. Then we come back around to this question of loving our neighbor as ourselves. As we prepare to go to the Lord's table this morning, the question for us is, do you realize who we are in this story? We're not the hero, not the Samaritan. We're more like the priest and the Levite than we want to admit. But in our sin, we are this man waylaid in the road without hope, save in the mercy of one we should have expected enmity from. That Jesus came and at great personal risk and cost to himself laid down his life for us. Do you believe that this morning? Are you ready to despair of all your good doing and trust in the one who has done? That then you might come back around and love your neighbor as he has loved you. Let me pray as we prepare to come to the table together. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin and in our rebellion, that you did not pass us by, but that you, Jesus, bound up our wounds by your own. That you put us on your animal and you took us all the way home. That you have loved us that we might love others. Lord, as we think about the question of what shall we do to have life with you, would you remind us again that you have come that we might have it and have it abundantly. That you have had compassion on us while we were a long way off. I pray as we prepare to come now to your table that you would nourish us, you would grow us in grace. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.